In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we observe the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We think back to that godly man found in the book of Genesis who walked with God, Enoch, and was taken up to be with the Lord apart from death. And likewise, in our Old Testament text, we're reminded of Elijah, who was carried up to heaven by whirlwind. So we see our Lord Jesus, one who walked with God closer than any other, one greater even than the prophet Elijah, ascends to heaven himself. And yet, this event is more profound than is often understood. As our hymnody this morning has so wonderfully taught, the ascension of Jesus is his session at the right hand of God. He is enthroned in heaven, not simply as the eternal and everlasting Son of God, but as the eternal and everlasting Son of God made man. Far above all earthly authority, all earthly governmental power, far above the entire heavenly hierarchy, seated upon the very throne of God, is one who bears your flesh. One who in his flesh bore each and every one of your sins and bore them to the cross to separate you from your sins as the east is from the west, to put them away forever, to reign on heaven's throne as man that we men might one day join and reign with him. That is the ascension. It is the crowning and coronation of Jesus above all heavenly and earthly powers. He reigns as king, one who was tempted as you were, and yet he himself without sin, but tempted as you are so that he might be a compassionate high priest and king. Whether we realized it or not, whether our imaginations could grasp it or not, just a few moments ago, as we all stood and made confession of our sins, we made confession of those sins before the very one who is enthroned in heaven. And though his voice came through a weak and raspy voice of a sinner, his voice of absolution is precisely what you heard. The king of heaven and earth has declared your sins to be forgiven. It is in, as sure and certain here on earth as it is there in heaven. For 40 days after our Lord's resurrection, he showed himself to his disciples. All said and done, the scriptures say that our Lord Jesus showed himself risen from the dead to over 500 eyewitnesses. He ate before them. He allowed himself to be touched. 
He proved and demonstrated that it was he, still bearing the nail marks in his hands and the spear mark in his side. It is absolutely certain that the historical attestation and evidence we have for Jesus' resurrection is so great that if you would throw that out and say, I can't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, you must simultaneously throw out every last other detail that you think you know about history. Because there is not a single historical event or person that is more attested to than Christ and his death, resurrection, and ascension. Likewise, so great is the eyewitness testimony, over 500 eyewitnesses, that if you throw out their testimony, you've just subverted the entire legal system. And you may as well toss that on, out on its ear as well, because men are exonerated or convicted on the basis of much less than 500 eyewitnesses many of whom are willing to go to the death rather than lie and betray what their eyes had seen. Christ is truly risen. Christ is truly ascended. And Mark, in his gospel at the very end, encapsulates these events under three major headings. The first is the appearance of Jesus to his disciples, and there he rebukes them. The second is that after his appearance to them and after he sends them forth, we are told of his ascension. And the third is that we're told of our Lord's ongoing work, that wherever his gospel is preached, he himself is there working with the preachers in order that we might be brought to faith. When our Lord appears to his disciples, according to Mark, he rebukes them for their faithlessness and for their hardness of heart because they did not believe the testimony of others who had seen him risen from the dead. After rebuking them, calling them to repentance, he then commissions them, as it were. He sends them to preach the gospel into all creation, to the very ends of the earth. That the creator, he himself, has died for all creation. That all creation might die with him. And as he has been risen anew, that all creation might be risen anew with him. The dawning of a new heavens and a new earth. He raised from the dead the new source. This gospel proclamation is to be sent throughout all of creation. Along with the promise that whoever believes and is baptized, will be saved. Not whoever believes and makes up for all of his sins with good works. Not whoever believes and balances the karmic ledger so that he's in the black when he dies. But rather, simply he 
who believes and is baptized. For what is it to be baptized but to be buried with Christ in his death? Those baptismal waters signifying our burial with him. The old creation is no more. And coming up out of those waters is signified our resurrection with him, our new birth with him, a new birth that will coalesce in the new heavens and the new earth. So he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Who then will be condemned? Only those who do not believe. Only those who insist unto their dying breath that God is a liar. For that is what you must do. You must call God a liar and you must spit upon the face of your only Savior, the Son enthroned in heaven. Or else you believe. You believe and are baptized and allow him to wash all your sins away and allow him to fill you with his Holy Spirit as he has now even done for you. Jesus then goes on to mention five signs that will accompany the preaching of the gospel. And these five signs are given only for a time and specifically to confirm the veracity of that message preached. God will do only things that God himself can do in order to bear witness himself that the words the disciples speak are from God and are true. The first of these is the casting out of demons. We've seen this already in the Gospels with the sending of the twelve and the seventy. We see it in the book of Acts continued, and references made in other New Testament scriptures. Likewise, Jesus promises the speaking in new tongues, new languages. We see this at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and grants his disciples to speak unto the foreigners who were drawn there in languages they previously did not know. Paul has much to say about this in his first letter to the Corinthians as well. Third, he mentions the handling of serpents without being harmed. There's at least one New Testament reference to this. You might recall St. Paul on the island of Malta, as recorded in Acts chapter 28. As he's moving the firewood, he's bit by a poisonous serpent. And those gathered around see that he must be a dead man. He must have been some murderer or great criminal that God has sent this serpent to bite him. But St. Paul simply shakes the serpent into the fire. And while everyone's waiting for him to swell up and die, he does neither. And so they switch from thinking he must be a criminal to, oh, he must be a god. (laughs) Well, the serpents did not harm him. As for those who drank poison or drank some deadly thing, we have no biblical reference to this fourth sign, but we do have extremely early reference to it 
in the fragments of a man named Papias. St. John the Evangelist, who wrote the Gospel of John, trained a man named Polycarp. Polycarp had a peer named Papias. And Papias speaks of some, and he names them by name, who had drank poison and who had even, in one case, drank the venom of a serpent and nonetheless lived. Last but not least, we have the sign that the disciples will lay their hands upon the sick and heal them. References to this we can find in the book of Acts as well as in the book of James. Suffice it to say that all of these signs accompanied the preaching of the gospel, God himself confirming its truth to the hearers. And though we see these things from time to time, we don't see them as we saw them at that time, simply because God has already confirmed his word as true. After this appearance, Mark, as is his way, moves extremely quickly to the next event. After saying these things, Jesus was taken up into heaven and seated at the right hand of God. We confess this very thing in the Apostles' Creed. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, where David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, The Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. When Christ ascends, he is seated at the very right hand of God, and we are told what is happening. One nation after another rises and falls, rises in tyranny against the Lord, falls and becomes his footstool. One nation after another rises and falls, but the nation and kingdom of Jesus remains just the same, unscathed, untouched, and dominant. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to our Lord Jesus when his kingship is finally and visibly revealed. But until that day, take heart. The victory is his and his enemies are being made his footstool. Last but not least, we're told that as the disciples of Jesus went out and preached everywhere, the Lord was working with them and confirmed their message by the accompanying signs just mentioned. That is to say that when the, Lord, when the Lord ascends, it's not as if he's leaving us. It's not as if he's going away from us. It might be much more analogous to think this way, or much more accurate to think in this analogous way, namely, that as the sun is rising, it might appear nearest of all to us, but it gives off not the fullness of its light or its warmth, only when the sun is risen to its zenith do we experience the fullness of its brightness and its warmth. 
so also the ascension of our Lord Jesus. He ascends not to depart from us, but to shine upon us with the fullness of his light and with his warmth. That means then, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that we must take care not to be faithless and not to grow hard of heart. How easy it is to fall into dark ways of thinking, to fall into cold ways of acting. But let the light and warmth of Christ, our ascended Son, shine upon you. Let His Spirit fill you anew and be filled with the confidence of the testimony of the Holy Spirit and His entire church on earth that your sins are forgiven, that Christ reigns, that these present sufferings which you are enduring, we are all enduring, are not worthy to be compared to that glory which He will reveal in you and to you on that last day. Don't let Satan convince you otherwise. You believe and you are baptized. It is just that simple. And so you shall be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.